Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Spooniebarger for this week's message from Story Point Church. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 15. How many of you know God is good? All the time. How do you know God is good? Is it because of what you see? Well, that is an evidence of God's goodness. But you know, sometimes we get confused and we say God is good when good things are happening. And we say, oh, I'm not so sure God is good when good things are not happening. But the truth of the matter is, what we see as God's goodness does not make Him good. What makes Him good is that it's in His character and it's in His nature The goodness of God is who He is, and so therefore, what comes from God is always good. And what we have to see, too, is sometimes what is good doesn't look like good to us. You know, uh, it's the whole idea of a parent saying, eat your vegetables, they're good for you. They may not be good, but they're good for you. So, sometimes, though, we get in places in our life that are deep, and they're dark. They're valleys. There are those places that we don't like to remember because they were so hurtful and so painful. They were places that were so dark that even though people might have been around, we were alone. And when we cried out, it seemed as though no one was there to hear us. And what I want to say to you today is this. That is part of life. You know, I hate to give you the, that, that answer, but if, if you would expect that life would not have valleys and that it would not have dark places, you, you can't expect to actually be breathing because that is part of this thing called life. Much of that is the result of this thing called sin. God didn't create that, but what we need to understand is that God is in the midst of that with us. And we see that most prevalently in this story. In Genesis chapter 16, it's the story of three people. But really, it's the story of one God and how he reveals himself to three people. Well, three people and then four people and then five people. It's the story of Abram and his wife Sarah and her maidservant Hagar. So in Genesis chapter 16, Abram's wife, verse 1, and Sarai had, been, uh, Sarai had not borne any children for him. But she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, Since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. So now remember, I'm probably going to say Abraham and Sarah because if you'll recall, God changes Abram's name to Abraham and he changes Sarai's name to Sarah. So I'm going to get those confused, I'm sure. Just know what I'm saying here. So here's the story. Abram and Sarai were childless. At this point, they had been in Canaan for 10 years, which meant that he was 84 years old. He said to, uh, uh, he, he had a conversation with God in chapter 15, and the conversation went like this. God, you keep telling me that my descendants will outnumber the sands on the seashore. You keep promising me that my my uh, children will, will be blessed and that you will bless all nations through me. You keep telling me these grand promises, but I, yet ha- I have yet to have a son. 
How in the world are you going to fulfill your promises to me if you haven't even given me the most basic need that I have for you to fulfill those promises, namely a son? And in chapter 15, he even says, I suppose that the the inheritance that I have built is all going to go to my servants and my slaves. Now, I don't sense any... Uh, uh, perturbedness in Abram in this, but I do sense a sense of urgency. It seems as though he kept saying to God, God, when are you going to do what you said you were going to do? You ever felt like that? You ever said to God, Lord, I, I believe I heard you, but why haven't you moved yet? Why haven't you acted yet? Why haven't you done what you said you were going to do? I mean, I thought you were a God of his word. Well, Sarai was feeling the pressure just as well. And the Bible says that, she said, since the Lord hasn't given us children, since the Lord has closed our womb, and she went through that process. You know how we go through that process. God said this, but what God said isn't happening, so I'm going to figure it out for God, and I'm going to force the issue. You ever done that? Can I just say, the next time you have a great idea that you're going to help God along in his plan, I want you to look in the mirror and say to yourself, hey, idiot, don't do that. Seriously, that deserves one of those knocking the heads. Because every time you insert your plan into the plan of God, you mess things up. Would you agree or disagree? How many times have we found ourselves in a, in a mess because we decided to rush God along and to hurry him up? That's what Sarah did. She said to her husband, Abram, she said, Abraham, listen, um, I'm old and you're older than me. So uh, here's what we need to do. I'm going to give you Hagar, my maidservant. Now, she wasn't just a slave. She was like a personal assistant. That word maidservant and mistress, as the scripture talk, talks about him here, it's, she's the personal assistant to Sarai. She was right there with her all the time. She was involved in the daily affairs. The maidservant was young. She was... Uh, an Egyptian, and she was fertile. Sarai was old, she was a Hebrew, and she was infertile. And so Sarai said, look, I'm going to give you my maidservant, and you can take her as a, as a wife, we would call that a concubine in, a lot of, in, in some terms, and she will be my surrogate mother, and then her child will be the heir, and I will treat her child as my child, and we'll just, we'll just make sure God is able to do what he says he's going to do. Does anybody see a problem here? I'm no rocket scientist, but I can tell you right now, this is not going to end up good for anyone involved, and it doesn't. Why? Because what she thought was a great idea quickly became sour. And then she did what we always want to do. We mess things up, and then we start blaming everybody else for the problem except ourselves. Look at what she said. And and by the way, Abraham's response to Sarai's great idea was what? Sure, sounds good to me. The Bible says here um, in verse 3, So Abram's wife Sarah took Hagar, her Egyptian slave, gave her to her husband Abram as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan ten years. He slept with Hagar and she became pregnant. And when she saw that she was pregnant, her mistress became contemptible to her. In other words, 
when Hagar, who was young and a slave and fertile, became pregnant, she now had leverage over her mistress, over her master. And so she became someone who would, who would perhaps taunt her. She was contemptible. So use your imagination of the kind of conversations that would happen between this young Egyptian girl and this old woman, Sarai. She was in her 80s, if that tells you anything. There was a major conflict and the conflict became so rough and so difficult that it made everyone's life hard, so much so that Sarah then blamed Abram. Here's what he said, or here's what she said. Verse 5, then Sarah said to Abram, you are responsible for my suffering. No, Sarai, you are responsible for your suffering, but your husband is also responsible because he went along with the plan. Little note here. Now, I've said this before, but it's true. And I don't mean this to be sexist in any way possible. But there are times when the wife's idea tries to supersede what God has said. And then the husband needs to say, the answer is no, no matter how much you tell me otherwise. Thank you. One amen in the room. But this... The single man in the room spoke up. Yes, indeed. Now, I'm not, again, listen to me. That doesn't mean that that is a common pattern that women usually lead their husbands. I'm just saying that there are times when a wife will say to a husband, this is what we're going to do. And the Bible says that the husband, as the head of the home, needs to stand up and say, no, this is what God has said, so this is what we're going to do. Even though there's contention there, what God says is always right. It's exactly what happened with Adam and Eve, isn't it? Eve said, hey, here's a tree. We should eat. Now, let me be fair. There are times when the wife will save the husband's tail if he will listen to her. Amen? That probably happens more often than the other. But the point is this. Just because the spouse wants it doesn't mean it should happen. And There has to be wisdom and discernment in the midst of that. And so Abram became the object of Sarah's anger. Isn't this true of the way we live life? We create such conflict in our own life, and then we blame everybody else for what's going on. She didn't do this. He didn't do that. She said this. He said that. He went here. She went there. And everybody's responsible for our own suffering except for, I messed up. Amen? We want to blame every. We even want to blame the government sometimes, which we know could never really be true. Okay, that was facetious. The fact is, what Sarah created by trying to enhance the plan of God was an absolute mess that we are still dealing with in the effects of today. I'll show you that in a minute. We are still dealing with this situation today, and we've been dealing with it for thousands of years. We are. I'll show you in a minute. So here's what happened. Abraham's response to Sarah was this. She's your, she's your slave. Do with her what you seem best. Do with her what you think is best. 
So he relegated the responsibility back to his wife and said, look, fix this. And so the Bible says that Sarah mistreated her slave Hagar in such a way that Hagar ran away. And this is where we find the next step of the story. See, this story is not just about Sarah and Abram and Hagar, but it's really about God. You see, the things that we do in our life to mess things up are, are many. We do a lot of things that, that just, they, they don't make sense in the grand scheme of what God is doing in our life. We, we do things based on the flesh rather than based on what God says is right. And we get into ourselves into these conundrums over and over and over and over and over. I told you about the time I bought a boat, right? There's a few different conundrums about buying a boat for me. And sometimes I, well, let me just say, I have a love affair with boats. I really do. Every boat I see has potential. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter how many holes are in it. Duct tape and a pocket knife will fix just about anything. But there have been one or two times where I knew that I wasn't supposed to buy the boat, and I did it anyways, and that boat wound up being a pain in the neck Y'all, can y'all identify with that in any way possible? Have you ever bought anything that you knew the Lord said don't buy? And he goes, okay, go ahead and buy it. Then he steps back and a little while later you're like, why did I ever buy this thing? And God's going, well, I told you not to do it. You ever had that experience? But here's the thing. We get ourselves into these situations over and over and over. We create this ginormous mess causing conflict in our life, causing conflict in our relationships, in our marriage, and in just every single area, and we feel like I've done it, I've blown it, I have gone so far that I am unredeemable. But I want to tell you, we serve a God who is a God of redemption. We serve a God who does not see anyone as unredeemable. Not one of us has gone so far that God says, well, I really wish I could reach you, but you've just taken one step too much. Because the Bible says that we're supposed to forgive others 70 times 7, which is a way of God saying, look, I as God will forgive anyone and everyone who will repent and come back to me. It doesn't matter how many times you go away. That is a God of unrelenting love, the kind of God that we sang about just a little bit ago. He is jealous for me, right? Oh, how he loves. Oh, how he loves. And there's actually a line in there about a sloppy wet kiss that we change because it's a weird phrase. But, but the whole idea is that he lavishes his love upon us in such a way that even though we don't deserve it, it's still there. Sometimes even against what we even ask for or want or desire. Actually, oftentimes. And so this God reveals himself in the midst of the mess. But a couple of things we need to see. Number one, when you create a mess, do not expect that God is just going to wipe the slate clean in terms of consequences. And he, he just goes, okay, all is good. Let's just start over. No, he forgives and he heals and he sets things right. But our own mess has consequences. Amen? 
We're not very smart sometimes. We don't remember that. We think that sometimes we can create a mess and then just walk away from it, declare bankruptcy, however that looks in that mess, and we just be totally, totally free. That's not the way it works. If you go out and you charge $100,000 to go to school to become a, 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 a cartoonist or whatever, and then you, you, you get a job as a cartoonist and you make $12 an hour and you go, how am I ever going to pay this? I'm actually saying this because I just read an article in one of the business magazines that, that these people are going to school in New York City and they're spending $300,000 to get a degree in something that they'll never make more than forty or 50000 a year. And the, 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 the problem is they're, they're now saying, hey, somebody's got to fix this for us. No, you can't go create a mess in your life and then just go, okay, God, it's yours. You fix it. And I'm just, no, that's not the way it works. There are consequences for sin. There are consequences for disobedience. Aren't you glad you came to church today? That's ownership. That's saying, look what I've done. But listen to me. Just because there are consequences does not mean that you are unredeemable. And it certainly doesn't mean that God is not with you in the midst of the mess, helping you through it and making a way where there is no other way. Because what the Bible says is that God listens to those who cry out to Him. God resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Even when we make a complete mess of our life and we come to God and say, God, I've totally blown it. God says, I will redeem you and I will walk with you out of this hole. Sometimes He surprises us and does that far faster than we can imagine, and sometimes he says to us, you're going to wrestle through this, because if I just give you a pass, you're going to go right around and do it all over again. Think about that. The natural consequences of sin are there so that it keeps us from doing it again, and again, and again. And so, what we have in the situation is Hagar, who runs away. In the very next verse, in verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar by a spring in the wilderness, a spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, slave of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? The beautiful part about this text is this. Sarah makes a mess. Abraham is part of that mess. Hagar is part of that mess. Hagar is not an innocent party, right? Because after she becomes pregnant, she begins to despise her own mistress. She begin, Just imagine what that conversation would be like. Imagine her walking through the, the room in the morning while Sarah's there, and uh, Hagar walks by and goes, Oh, I feel the baby kicking today. I mean, just imagine, however that worked out, it wasn't good. The mistreatment happened. Hagar ran away, so she was complicit in this situation. And yet God went to find her. That's what I want you to see. God finds you and me in the midst of our mess. God doesn't just say, well, one day he'll come back to me. No, God is unrelenting and that He chases after us and He is there. The Bible tells us that He is an ever-present help in times of trouble. That in the midst of her darkest time, 
Now remember, she's a slave. She was protected and she was provided for by her master Abram and, and, and the family. And so everything that she had, all of her security, all of her wealth, all of her comfort, all of her safety, all of that was within the family. The moment she ran away, she was totally exposed to all of the dangers of life. Essentially, she ran away expecting to die. And yet God went out and found her. And when he found her, the Bible says, I have two questions for you. Where have you come from? And where are you going? Is it because God didn't know? You think it was because God didn't see what was going on at, back, back at the, the camp? Do you think it was because God was just wanting to rub it in her face? No. It's because God knows and he wants us to recognize that not only he knows, but he wants us to know what's actually going on. It's this whole understanding of when you receive God's grace, if you don't know you need God's grace, then it's really not God's grace. Does that make sense? If you don't know how bad you needed God, then it's nothing special when he shows up. But when you're in a pit, when you're in a hole, when you're all alone, and when you're crying out, where is anybody, somebody, and God shows up, that's when you say, God, you heard me, and you see me, which is exactly how God reveals himself to Hagar and to Sarai and to Abram in this situation. You see, God says through the angel to Hagar, after he says, where have you come from and where are you going? It says, go back to your mistress and submit to her authority. The angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your offspring and they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her, you have conceived and you will have a son. And you will call his name Ishmael. For the Lord has heard your cry for affliction. There's two names for God revealed in this passage. One is, in, one is or, or two char character revelations in this passage. One is the character of God as the God who, who hears. And that was by God saying, Ishmael is the God who hears. So God is saying, uh, Hagar, I hear you. I hear you. I hear your sobs, I hear your cries, I hear your loneliness, I hear your fears, I hear your brokenness, I hear your anger, I hear everything. And not only do I hear where you've been, but I also hear where you're going. I know what you don't know, because I hear everything. My wife got those kinds of ears. She hears everything. We were just at the lake house, uh, not our lake house. We have a family member who was a lake house. We went to visit them. 25 years ago, right after we had gotten married, we were staying at this lake house, just the two of us. And we had turned out the lights. It was late, maybe one in the morning. She was already asleep. I was the late, late night owl at that time. And I was finally asleep. I had, had, had just, just barely drifted off. And I feel this claw. <laughs> Jeff. I'm like, what? 
You know how when you just go to sleep, you don't want to be waking up? Yeah, it was like that. Jeff, what? There's a roach. I said, what are you smoking? It's dark. She goes, I hear him walking across the floor. I said, no, you don't. She said, yes, I do. He's right over there beside you. If I'm lying, I'm dying. I said, I will prove to you there's no roach. I got up, I flipped on the light, and right there next to the bed was a roach. He goes, "Uh." (laughs) How's that happen? She has superhuman ears. She and my dog can hear things that no other human can hear. God hears everything. God hears the whimpers. God hears the loneliness. God hears the words that you can't even speak with words. The, the, kind, of, the kind of things inside that are confused and jumbled and, and all messed up. And you just, it, it's that feeling of you're, you're going to just explode, but you don't know how. Or it's that desperation. Listen. God said of himself, I hear you. There's no other God like that. Buddha doesn't hear nobody. Allah doesn't hear anybody. The millions of Hindu gods, they're just idols and statues. If you go to India about the time of October, what you will find is multiple parades throughout the city. What they do is they build carnival floats to represent their God. They march them throughout the city, and then once they get to the end of the route, they throw them into the lake. And then next year, they rebuild them and do it all again. Those gods do not hear their people. We have a God Who hears everything. But not just hears. He sees everything. See the Bible says that after Hagar had this encounter with the angel of the Lord. She then said. This place is now called. The God who sees me. Because I have seen the one who sees me. The biblical term is El Roi, the God who sees. My question to you is this. Do you feel like you're all alone? Do you feel like nobody's there? Do you feel like even though you got people all around you, you're just in this place where nobody gets you, nobody understands, nobody, nobody senses, nobody's felt this way before? I want to tell you that the Bible says that we don't have a high priest who is unsympathetic with our weakness. No, we have one who is sympathetic because in all ways he was tempted just like you and I were tempted, and he gets us because he hears us and he sees us. He is the word. Word made flesh. He is God who dwells among us. He is Emmanuel. This King of kings and Lord of lords is your mediator. He's the one who stands in the gap and knows everything there is to know about you plus more. 
This is the God we serve. What are you doing with the God you serve? Hagar was told to do two things. Go back to the home, go back to Abram's house, and begin to serve again in your duties. Notice that she went back to the place where the pain was happening. She went back there. God said, I'm not going to deliver you from it. I'm going to deliver you through it. That's worth an amen right there. We want God to deliver us from it. And God says, no, I'm going to deliver you through it. Because it's in that situation that I'm going to mold you and refine you and build you and change you. And in that moment, you are going to see who I really am. You say, well, how is it possible that I can have that kind of trust or that kind of faith in a God that I can't see? We see, the key is this. Too many people wait until the moment of crisis to know God. You can find God in the moment of crisis, but you're way better off finding God before the moment of crisis happens. That way, when you're in the crisis, you'll be able to hear His voice and recognize it much more quickly. Being faithful to the Lord in the good times is when God reminds you of who He is so that in the bad times, that reminder comes much quicker than it ever possibly would. And so, she goes back to her home and she holds on to the promise of God. And the promise that God had said was this, The Lord will bless you, and the man will be like a wild donkey. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him. He will settle near all of his relatives. And then Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar was born. This son was born, and he received the safety and the blessing of his father Abram. Why? Because God said to Abram, I'm going to bless you and your descendants are going to be larger than the sands on the seashore. So here's where the rubber meets the road. A couple of things. Number one, if you're the one in the pit, if you're the one in the desperate place, if you're the one who feels all alone, and it could be any number of things. It could be addiction, it could be depression, it could be situations, it could be physical, it could be monetary, whatever it is. If you're in that place, you need to know that God hears you and God sees you. Those aren't just words. He is already there with you. Sometimes He is silent because He's trying to get you to be silent and find Him, but I promise you He is always There, The Bible says that he said of himself, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. God is either a liar or he tells the truth. He cannot be both. If he will never leave you or never forsake you, even though you don't see him, he is still there. But if that's not your situation right now, if things are good in your life, then the question is, well, what do you do with this text? Well, two things. One, you remember This when your day comes, because it will come. But two, you begin to be the hands and feet of Christ for those who are in the pit. See, this week I was driving somewhere in Pensacola, 
and I saw somebody on the side of the road, and I remember my first thought was a judgmental thought. I don't remember exactly the details, but I remember thinking to myself that I was, I was, I was judging the person in their condition, and then the Lord, uh, he smote me, right? It's in a good Old Testament term. He thumped me on the side of the head. He said, Jeff, how do you know what's going on? And I began to process this, and I began to think, why is this person like this? What's their story? Where have you been? Do you know everybody acts out in life as a reaction or as a, as a result of where they've been? People say your past doesn't define your future. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. It defines your future in that your past shapes and forms you mostly, I say mostly, sometimes in the negative and sometimes in the positive. So your past has everything to do with your future, but where it's, it's not true is just because you have a past that looks one way doesn't mean that your future's going to look that way. That's what it's really saying. No matter what kind of pit you were in before, God has a purpose and a plan for you in the future that the pit informs you of who he is so that in the future you can know who he is and act upon who you actually are. That's why God changed Abram's name to Abraham and Sarai's name to Sarah. Because their future made them who they are, but, or their past made them who they are, but their future God redesigned. He reimagined it, if you will. And so, for you and for me, when we look at people, we need to see people with the eyes of Jesus. We need to see people the way God sees them, and we need to ask the question, why are they like this, rather than just reacting to how they are? A couple of examples. You go to the store, and the person there waiting on you at the self-checkout line, has an attitude. They're flippant and they're very short with you. Not short with you, but, you know, snippy. Rather than just snip back, take a moment and say, Lord, what do I need to see here? Now, they could just be a jerk. I mean, that is entirely possible. But what I found is that people act in the way that resembles their history or their past. What you don't know about that person is they could be going home to an abusive marriage. They could have a son or a daughter who is in a hospital because they've been Baker acted. They could have just taken in their elderly father or mother and now they're wondering how their salary at Walmart as a as a, a, a cashier is going to pay for all the extra expense of having another mouth to feed and another bed to make. And so rather than looking at that shortness as, hey, they're just a jerk, maybe they are, but why not give them the kind of grace that you and I would want if we were in that situation? Why not say to yourself, you know what? They deserve me. They, they, they don't deserve kindness from me but I'm going to give them kindness. I'm not just going to give them kindness. I'm going to lavish it upon them. 
Because the Bible says that that's what God did with us. He lavished His love and His grace and His kindness to us. What about that coach who's hard on the players, using all kinds of language and doing all kinds of things that are rude and wrong? What if you were able to ask God, God, what's the root of this? And what if instead of just blasting him on the field in front of everybody, you're able to go to him and say, hey man, can we talk? And what if you met the anger with kindness? Because what if all that guy ever knew was his father yelling at him because he was never good enough on the field like the father expected him to? Or maybe the guy who's a little bit effeminate, the guy who, who doesn't seem like much of a man, the way he talks and the way he acts, instead of just making assumptions, what if you ask the Lord, Lord, what's going on? Maybe, maybe his father walked out on him when he was a kid, and all he's ever known was a single mom and no father figure in his life whatsoever. I mean, how many scenarios could there be? Amen? The truth of the matter is, God sees every one of those people. God hears every one of those people. They are not mistakes. They are dearly loved by God. He is, they are priceless to Him, and He is not willing that any one of them should perish, but that all would come to eternal life. And He says to you and to me, you are therefore an ambassador of Christ Jesus, as though Christ Jesus were making His appeal through us. When we can't see the grace of God, how often is it that God gives His grace through His people, the church? the body of Christ. So the next time you see the addict, don't necessarily give him money unless the Lord leads you to, but have compassion. Open your eyes to something bigger. The next time you see the, the, the kid that's spoiled rotten inside the grocery store, instead of offering judgment or looks, listen, they don't need any more stairs. The mom doesn't need any more stairs than they've already gotten. Have you ever had a little kid? <laughs> if you hadn't, you ought, to, you ought to rent one for a day. I'll be, I'll be honest, sometimes I don't know what to do. It's like I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. In those moments, you do the best you can do. Lord, I need your wisdom. Here's the most perfect thing about this whole situation. Because God has said that you are his ambassador. He has said to you and to me, I'm not going to leave you hanging. I'm going to give you something to help you in every situation as my representative. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit inside of you so that in every single situation you see and have to deal with, if you'll just listen to my voice, I'll tell you everything you need to know. You want to talk about cool? It's when you're having a conversation with somebody and you say something about them or to them and they say to you, how did you know? And you whisper back, I got somebody on the inside. He whispers to me in the dark because he wants you to know he hears you and he sees you. In fact, there's somebody here today 
that you're saying to yourself, how in the world, this is exactly what I needed. You want to know how that's possible every single week? Because God hears you and he sees you. Amen? We serve an amazing God. He's worthy of our praise. This morning, if you're here and you've never trusted your life to Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to do that. Now, I know most of us in this room, most of us are born again, but it might be that, that there's somebody here who you've never truly repented and trusted Jesus. Maybe there's somebody that's watching by way of TV or by way of Facebook, and you've never trusted Jesus. I want to invite you to do that. We serve a God who hears us and he sees us. We close your eyes and bow your head. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us to recognize the brokenness around us and help us to, to be there as your representative. Lord, I pray that you would give us grace upon grace so that we could lavish that upon people. Lord, as my friend says, help us to be hope dealers everywhere we go. And Father, I pray for the one who's listening today who is in that pit. Lord, they are in that place of desperation. Father, may the grace that can only come from you be lavished upon them. May they lift their eyes up and see that you, O oh God, are present. Father, even in the midst of our sin, you are present to redeem us. God, we pray this in Jesus' mighty name. God's people said, will you stand with me? Let's sing together. And as you sing, if there's a decision you need to make, I invite you to make the decision. If there's a prayer that you need to pray, just take a moment and be with God. But as you sing these words, let them be a, a song to God.